From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Air Talk. Good morning. I'm Larry Mantle. Cancellations are mounting as the number of coronavirus cases grow. Several prominent universities are moving classes online. Some sports events are being canceled or played without fans in attendance. Even the prominent Coachella Festival is reportedly considering postponing until later in the year. We'll update you and take listener questions for our public health experts. And controversy continues over a major publishing house's planned decision to publish, then cancel publication of Woody Allen's autobiography. We'll hear multiple perspectives on the move. It's Air Talk right after NPR News on 89.3 KPCC. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Good to have you with us. Later on the program, we'll be talking about the big Tuesday primaries. Six states holding very important primary elections, including Michigan. But we begin with the latest on coronavirus locally with us, L.A. County Department of Public Health Director Barbara Ferrer. Thank you for joining us again. Let's start uh, first with the details. Uh, How many uh, confirmed cases do we have? Yesterday, I know you announced uh, we have the first community uh, spread uh, case of, of the virus. Where do we stand? Sure. Thank you so much, Larry. Um, And again, I appreciate this opportunity to give an update. Uh, So we have 16 confirmed cases here in L.A. County. I I do want to let everyone know, you know, we anticipate every day uh, moving forward, we will be confirming additional cases. Uh, We generally try to get um, that information out around 12 noon every day. Obviously, we have to uh, wait until we get lab confirmation and then until we complete uh, enough of an investigation to be able to give good information uh, to the general public. But but I do want people to know, um, given that there's more community spread in the rest of the United States as well as the rest of the world, and given that we had, as you noted, our first case of a person for whom we could not identify a source of exposure. That's what we call community spread. We anticipate that there is more, there are more people here in LA County who may be infectious and therefore over time are going to be likely to spread this disease to others. Uh, I do want to remind folks that, you know, our basic messages haven't changed in terms of people needing to stay home when they're sick, even with mild illness. Uh, While we have increased test capacity uh, here in L.A. County, we don't have test capacity that allows every single person to be tested, which means if you're sick, you should assume you're infectious with some agent that you could give somebody else, some bug that can be uh, sent to somebody else. So uh, sick people need to still stay home. We're also sort of increasing uh, our guidance to people who are at higher risk for serious disease if they should, in fact, uh, become infected with COVID-19. And those are people with underlying health conditions. uh, that, That could be somebody who has cancer, who has diabetes, who has asthma, who has an immune system that is weakened. We also are concerned about people who are elderly. We know that The average age across the world at which people are more likely to die of novel coronavirus, of COVID-19 disease, 
is in fact uh, 80, which means that as people get older, their risk increases for serious illness and uh, the unfortunate uh, event of, of having some people that who are dying from, from COVID-19. So again, we want to make sure we're protecting our elderly and pregnant women. And for that group of people, we're now recommending that they should avoid all non-essential travel, that they should avoid going to large public gatherings, they should avoid going to large public events, they should stay away from theaters as much as possible uh, to protect themselves as there's more uh, virus that may be circulating in our community. People who are at highest risk of really contracting serious illness need to take some protections. Uh, starting uh, tomorrow, we will be visiting uh, with uh, a team of technical assistance experts, all of the nursing homes and all of the long-term care facilities in L.A. County to make sure that they have what they need to both protect their employees and, most importantly, to protect their guests, who are already many are in a fragile health condition. Dr. Ferrer, uh, you said pregnant women should avoid any sorts of, of public events. Was there another group you mentioned with pregnant women? Sure. It's pregnant women, people with underlying health conditions, and people who are elderly. Okay. Should avoid going out. And so is shopping at the supermarket a potential risk? or Consider shopping at the supermarket, an event where you have a lot of exposure with, with people. I mean, you're not shopping and you're not crowded in an aisle where people for 10 minutes are in your face potentially coughing, as they might be at a theater or public event where you're all sitting together and in a crowded situation. And it's difficult to move, yeah. Distance between yourself and other people. I also wanted to mention, you said 16 Los Angeles County cases. That's within your jurisdiction. There are the three Long Beach cases, uh, Long Beach with its own public health department. So uh, we should mention that as well. Yes, and I appreciate your reminding me. There are 19 cases in L.A. County. Uh, that we've reported and three that have been reported by the Long Beach Health Department. And just so people know, we work very closely together. It's just jurisdiction matters here because uh, when you have positive cases, you're often issuing isolation and quarantine orders. And those orders would be handled by the Long Beach Public Health Department for Long Beach residents. We've, we've had a couple of healthcare workers at urgent care centers say they don't have access to the test collection kits to be able to to send off and have people tested. So again, who does have those kits if someone needs to be tested? You know, there are various provider offices that already have those and medical facilities that have those. We don't have a list of who has the capacity to do that testing. Uh, It's a matter of having trained staff and in some situations having a room where it's appropriate to collect those specimens. Um, and then having, of course, the ability to to have the uh, specimen kits that you need to collect the specimens. Um, and many places, unfortunately, many providers, particularly providers who are in solo practices or small group practices, are not set up for taking these specimens. But I want to assure you that providers know where they can send their patients. Okay. Uh, to get tested. So it's not. It's uh, you know I I can't give you the whole list. It's a long list. Mm-hmm where people can get tested, but providers who don't have capacity to test, 
either call us because they have a dedicated line to reach us and we'll tell them, or they already know where to send to Thank you so much, Barbara Ferrer. We appreciate your joining us. Look forward to it tomorrow. She's director, Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. Uh, just want to update you on what's going on with public events. Uh, you've probably been hearing that many communities have canceled uh, St. Patrick's Day festivities or other public gatherings. Professional sports leagues are considering what to do uh, with their crowds. At this point, we haven't had... Uh, Um, games scheduled with no crowds whatsoever. But the major sports leagues made a joint announcement last night that they would not have visitors in the locker room or clubhouses, that all interviews would be done uh, instead outside of those areas to limit the exposure uh, of the athletes to those who might be ill without knowing it. Uh, They're also, uh, with the Coachella Music Festival, that fans eagerly await uh, at this point we there are reports that organizers are considering whether they can hold that at the regular time or will need to postpone till later in the year uh, there have been uh, international sporting events played before uh, empty stadiums with the game simply televised no live fans and there have been others canceled outright the Ivy League announced this morning it's canceling its league men's and women's basketball tournaments and award, awarding the NCAA a um, automatic uh, qualifying to the tournaments to the top regular season finishers uh, in the respective women's and men's Ivy Leagues. Joining us now to talk about the latest on COVID-19, the novel coronavirus, is Dr. David Eisenman, professor of medicine and public health at UCLA. He directs the university's Center for Public Health and Disasters. Dr. Eisenman, we appreciate your being with us us today. Uh, I'd like to take some listener calls uh, with questions for you as well. We're at 866-893-KPCC, 866-893-5722. First of all, your top of mind thoughts about what we're seeing from uh, the spread of coronavirus in the U.S. Well, thank you for having me on the show. I think it's really important to emphasize what our health commissioner just said, which is that we should expect to see more cases every day. I think it's really important, too, that we have this clear, credible, and consistent information from her coming every day uh, at noon, the announcement from the uh, local health department about this. So we um, should expect to see disruptions multiply as the cases increase. This is an exponential growth. In the beginning, you see one case, then two, then four, then 16, and it doesn't really seem like much. But if you remember your curves of exponents from high school math, you know, dare I say, it takes off at that point, 256, 6,000. And that's the, the nature of exponential growth, as it seems quite small in the beginning, and then it explodes. So we all need to start to mentally prepare and listen to our health commissioners about what we can do to reduce transmission in the community. Are, are you taking any solace in the rate of spread in China seeing to, seeming to slow? It is good news. It shows that the curve of transmission can be bent. 
that if we have rigorous uh, social distancing and people uh, adhere to that, that we can change the rate of people getting infected and the number of people getting sick. And that's really good public health. We're seeing uh, some universities go to online classes uh, for the foreseeable future. Um, Both of the major Bay Area universities, Stanford and Cal, have done that. Columbia has done it. Uh, And there have been several others that have followed suit. What is the threshold for a college or university making a decision to do that? Is that just an abundance of caution or more than that? I think it differs between each university. I guarantee you that each university is meeting daily to get an update on cases in the community, uh, to understand what's the situation, and to see if they need to change their status. Some may be changing, maybe going to online teaching because there's been a case among a worker or a student. Or others are making this decision because there are cases in the community. So Columbia and Yeshiva University in New York are in, uh, are near the epicenters of the New York outbreak. Why UC Berkeley chose, that's probably a similar reason, but I can't say I'm not privileged to that. I know that all the universities are thinking about reducing the effect on their student body, on their staff, and having uh, different triggers, but all very informed triggers for that decision. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this news that is just broken, but uh, in in uh, the community of New Rochelle, which is just outside New York City, a one-mile containment zone is going to limit gatherings there. This, the New York Times is reporting. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what a containment zone is and when public officials might call for that? I haven't seen that. I'm not sure if that means that they are quarantining people within that zone or if they're doing something called a cordon sanitaire, which is what has been going on in Italy, where people are not allowed to travel in and out. So I, I haven't seen the article. Yeah, and we I don't talk yeah. about. We often mix up the term quarantine and cordon sanitaire, and they're different. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on this story and see what specifically they're talking about, because they, they use that term that uh, certainly I'm not familiar with. And we'll see if we get more specifics on what's happening there. We're talking with Dr. David Eisenman, professor of medicine and public health at UCLA. So this is an opportunity for you to ask him specific questions about COVID-19. We're at 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Denise in Tarzana says, I have friends in Italy who were locked in, seeing how China and South Korea have gone to extremes of quarantining residents. Do you see mass quarantines as a viable solution? Dr. Eisenman? There's a lot of debate about this among professionals in the public health community. It seems to have worked in China the WHO says that it made a big difference, and we can see that in the bending of the curve, the lower number of new cases every day in China. It, it is early to say whether it's going to work in northern Italy and whether it's going to work in, in Italy. 
Uh, and it's even a question of feasibility in the United States. So we do know that social distancing works, limiting mass gatherings, telling people to work from home, uh, reducing travel. Those are evidence-based practices that we know do work across all kinds of epidemics. But the scale of what has been done in China and the scale of what is being done in Italy has never been done before in the modern era of uh, epidemics. So it's really, we are all all trying to learn uh, whether they work or not. Tony in Playa Vista says, what makes this coronavirus different from other outbreaks like H1N1 or SARS? Is it the way that COVID-19 spreads? Um, I'm curious how we got past those outbreaks, Tony said, but this one is such a big deal. Well, it is different. They have different levels of lethality for number, number one. Uh, SARS, which I think the question asked, the questioner asked about, was very lethal, but it wasn't as easily. Um, it was e- more. It was easily contained, uh, and we were able to stop the spread in the community and get rid of it. H1N1, we actually had a s- outbreak of it, and then it died away in the summer, and then it came back in the fall, and. We still have outbreaks of H1N1, but they're very small, so it's never gone away. But we are able to um, immunize against it, and we are able to keep it from being uh, a, a major epidemic. We're talking with UCLA uh, professor of medicine and public health, Dr. David Eisenman. He's a director of the University Center for Public Health and Disasters. He's kindly come on to answer questions and to talk about COVID-19. We're at 866-893-KPCC. Airlines reporting some difficult financial news. Southwest Airlines CEO Gary Kelly says COVID-19 might do more economic economic damage to airlines than the 2001 uh, terror attacks did. Uh, Delta Airlines also announced today travel demand has fallen so badly over the past week, it expects a third of its seats to be empty this month on flights within the U.S. Uh, The stock market has rebounded somewhat today. So there's some positive news in this. We'll continue with more of your calls and questions at 866-893-5722. You're listening to AirTalk. You're listening to AirTalk on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle with public health expert Dr. David Eisenman. He's professor of medicine and public health at UCLA. Their classes are still as scheduled. USC, as you probably have heard, over the next three days doing a test of online-only classes to see how that's going. We're at 866-893-KPCC. Adrian in Los Feliz asks a question that many people have. She has a flight to France later this month, wondering if at this point she should cancel the trip. Uh, Dr. Eisenman, for people who are traveling to Europe or to Asia, should they consider canceling at this point? Well, this is uh, a question I get a lot of, and 
common sense says that the uh, the travel is increased risk. Not um, we can't say for sure which countries are going to be risky to go to in a month. We also know that as you go to another country, there may be travel bans or quarantines imposed when you return. So uh, we really, at this point, say that you're taking a risk with international travel. Yeah, because that would be a bummer, uh, Adrian, if you went to France and and then for whatever reason there was a quarantine, you couldn't come back, even if you were completely well and hadn't been exposed. It could certainly be, be disruptive for your life. Uh, Isaac in Pasadena says, I have a small office in downtown Los Angeles that I manage, about 20 people. At what point should I have everybody work from home? Uh, again, it's a question. Small business owners who don't have to be open to interact with a customer's face to face. What should they consider when making that call, Doctor? Well, the first thing is to keep up to date with the County Department of Public Health recommendations each day. At the point in which they formally request that kind of social distancing, that's the time to adhere to that recommendation. But before that, there's nothing wrong with starting to implement small practices along that way. So as much as possible, you may want to stagger people coming in, have those people who can work from home work from home some days, if not all days. You know, it doesn't have to be 100% effective to be effective to social distancing, that is. So start to practice those, start to get the bugs out of the system uh, and start to perfect that and start to get used to it and adapt to it. We have Lynn in West Los Angeles uh, saying, uh, asking about elective surgery specifically. I guess she has a surgery scheduled at your medical center there at UCLA, wondering if it's best to postpone um, if, if it's uh, non-emergency, non-essential surgery or to go ahead and have it. What do you think? I think the first thing to do is to talk to your surgeon and to find out what they would advise. In general, the hospitals are still operating under routine uh, circumstances, taking elective surgeries, doing elective admissions, and there's no problem in going to the hospital. All right. Uh, We have Brandon in downtown Los Angeles. Brandon, you're on AirTalk. Your question for Dr. Eisenman. Yeah, Dr. Eisman. So I'm an event planner in LA. I do events throughout the city, um, typically ranging in attendance sizes from like 50 to 200, 300. Um, and I'm noticing that uh, with these events that are coming up, people, you know, attendees are asking for refunds. Some vendors are pulling out, but more importantly, vendors are reaching out to me for for guidance whether they should continue to participate, whether they should cancel their plans. Um, and the only sort of guidance I've seen from CDC is that organizers, large of groups attending, uh, attracting large people should consider canceling or modifying. What is a good threshold for a large number of people? And, you know, what should I be thinking about doing? Brandon, thanks for the question. That's a great question. There is no single threshold that is has any factual basis behind it. Uh, for instance, today... Santa Clara declared gatherings of a thousand or more as uh, as uh, 
forbidden. Well, I'm not probably a better word for that. Where the thousand number came from is not clear to me. Uh, so you really have to make a decision. We're seeing cancellations of conferences of a couple hundred and certainly cancellations of conferences of a couple thousands. And sometimes the issue gets pushed by just attendee cancellations. I think, you know, with South by Southwest in Austin, one of the issues before the mayor of Austin uh, said the event should be canceled was that there were a lot of cancellations of people who were going to go, uh, you know, filmmakers, musicians and the like, who were pulling out. And so then you get to the financial issue of that. If you're going to have, you know, the attractions pulling out of the event um, and that's going to have depressed tickets further, it becomes sort of a you know cyclical uh, event. It feeds on itself. Um, and then you have to figure out about whether it's worthwhile to hold the, the event after all. Brandon, we, we wish you the best with, with that. Obviously, this is very tough for your business as an event planner. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Michael in downtown Los Angeles, you're on with UCLA physician and professor Dr. David Eisenman. For taking my call, my question is, is for healthcare providers. There does not seem to be any um, guidance or any particular recommendations on how to screen patients, who to let in our offices, who to send to the emergency room. I wanted to get your expert's opinion on that, as in uh, we are in the front lines of this whole epidemic, and we need more guidance. We need more guidelines. What what, what kind of a clinic are you at, Michael? Uh, other than what everybody knows, how everybody knows how to screen people, what are the expert recommendations? Michael, what kind of clinic are you at? Family practice clinic. A family practice. Okay, thank you. Dr. Eisenman? Yes. So, Michael, there are recommendations at the CDC website for clinicians on how to uh, think about who deserve, who needs testing. In general, Tests are unfortunately still limited in Los Angeles and only available through a certain number of centers and labs. So I know that uh, you can't screen in the, in, the, in the usual sense of the word, that is testing just everybody, that the person has to have a fever and some symptoms consistent with coronavirus, such as trouble breathing, or um, other respiratory symptoms like a cough. And at least as of yesterday, they need to have had some contact with someone with a disease or travel. Now, there's really it's really clear to me that that's going to change very soon. Once we have community spread, by definition, we're no longer going to limit it to people who have a known contact or known travel history. But you need to keep up with that uh, through the Department of Public Health website, which also has material for clinicians as well as through the CDC. Uh, I have more details on what's happening in, in New Rochelle in New York. Governor Andrew Cuomo announced that schools, houses of worship, and large gathering places will be shuttered for two weeks in a containment area centered in suburban New Rochelle. It is the heart of what appears to be the nation's biggest cluster of coronavirus cases. The state will send National Guard troops to help clean surfaces and deliver food in the area 
one-mile radius around a point near a synagogue connected to some existing cases. This according to New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. The state and a private health system are setting up a testing facility in the area. Schools within it will close for two weeks starting Friday, and state and local officials are working to determine large congregate facilities or gathering places that also will shut down. Um, So, Dr. Eisenman, that the kind of thing you expect we will see more of? Possibly. So what they have there is a epicenter of infection, and they're very concerned about uh, whether it lives on hard surfaces in that area. So as I said, they're closing down all places that are open to the public, such as uh, churches and, and other gathering facilities, and they're going to be doing a thorough cleaning of all of that. In addition, it sounds like they may be closing. Are they? Do they say if they're closing businesses? Uh, I don't see that in the report, but it, it's certainly possible. So I would be surprised if they closed businesses. I think people still need to be able to go out to shop and get food. They may be going in and cleaning down those facilities and then reopening them. What I don't hear is that there's any limitation on the residents of that area from traveling in no. and out. No. So that's not a cordon sanitaire. That's a sort of a, a step uh, before that. It's really a way of just cleaning down the area. All right. We have another listener says, is it possible someone can be contagious with the virus but isn't experiencing or showing any symptoms? Yes, unfortunately, there does seem to be some ability to spread the virus in the day before symptoms are are experienced by people. Now, this is not common, but we do see in the data that there are some people who spread the disease in about the 24 hours before they start to feel fever, for instance. And that's a small percentage in the single digits, I think. All right. Uh, Anna in Mid-City asks, what precautions should people take when using public transportation? Well, the, the problem is that the virus can live on hard surfaces for several hours, probably several days. So you really want to uh, wash your hands down when you get into whatever you've touched. You know, if you've touched uh, a pole on a, um, on a subway or the door handle on a taxi, you want to wash your hands down as soon as you can. In between, if you can't get to a place to wash your hands, do not touch your face. Uh, if you have hand sanitizer, do it inside the car. And then when you get out of the car, do it again when you get out of the car. So, and all along, please do not touch your mouth, nose, or eyes. All right. And of course, if you're in a bus or train where there's somebody coughing, please move away. All right. Let's take another call. Eric in Jefferson Park, L.A., you're on Air Talk. I would, my biggest concern here is that we live in a democratic republic with a capitalist economy. China, as we know, is communist, and they have much more control over the populace and quarantine. Italy is a democratic republic, but in a way they have old school values. Given our, our government and economic system, are we at a disadvantage in the United States? I spoke with my physical trainer just earlier. I said, what if you had to take three months off? He said, I'd be bankrupt. I don't know what I'd do. What are your thoughts on this? Dr. Eisenman? It's a very important question. We're seeing how the way we construct society runs up against 
the ways of containing this disease. So, for instance, the fact that you uh, we see reports of people who are getting tested for a coronavirus who are then given a $1,000 bill. Uh, or f- we hear of um, people who uh, cannot stay away from work because they're temporary workers uh, and they may lose their job. So we've set up a system that is opposed in some ways to really doing the kind of social distancing and getting the kind of health care we need. And I think this really does force some questions For instance, it shows that having universal health insurance is really a security issue as much as anything else. If we don't know that everyone can get health care without any disincentive, we have no way of really uh, protecting ourselves from these kinds of viruses when people don't go to the doctor. There, of course, everybody does have access, at the very least, to the emergency room and will be seen there, even if you have to wait hours. Yes, but going to the emergency room puts you at increased risk because you're near people, and if you're sick, puts the people in the emergency room at risk. So, you know, we're saying now with mild disease, we want people to stay at home and not spread it. I'm very concerned that uh, the obstacles to getting care that have always been in our society, we do know that people don't get care for things all the time like hypertension and diabetes because of health insurance reasons, that those same blocks, those same obstacles are going to be uh, a problem here. I want to thank you so much, Dr. Eisenman, for being with us. We have so many more listener questions, but every day we're going to be talking about coronavirus, taking your calls, taking questions about it. That'll be part of what we do every day here on AirTalk. So my apologies, we couldn't take more listener questions, but our lines have just been jammed from the beginning till now. Dr. David Eisenman, UCLA professor of medicine and public health. He directs the university's Center for Public Health health and disasters. He's also a scientist at RAND. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPECC. We'll be back in 90 seconds. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Good to have you with us. Today, an important day for the Democratic presidential race. Six states holding primaries, including very important Michigan, where uh, Bernie Sanders hoping to come back from his setback on Super Tuesday, even though he he won the state with the most delegates, California. We'll uh, talk about what the stakes are. That's coming up next hour on Air Talk. But first, as you might have heard last week, uh, in fact, it was last Monday, the Hachette Book Group announced it would publish Woody Allen's autobiography apropos of nothing. Uh, The CEO uh, of Hachette said, um, we believe strongly there's a large audience that wants to hear the story of Woody Allen's life as told by Woody Allen himself. Well, turned out that many of the employees of that publishing company didn't want the book to come out. They staged a walkout in support of Ronan Farrow, the investigative reporter 
Porter, who is uh, a prized author uh, at Hachette Book Group. Uh, Ronan Farrow has written about his sister Dylan Farrow's account, alleging that she was molested at the age of seven by her father, Woody Allen. The question is, was this a wise move on the part of Hachette to first agree to publish it? Was it a mistake for them once agreeing to publish it to bow to the pressure of their employees who were unhappy about that and to withdraw the publication of the book? Uh, Joining us to talk about that uh, very issue is Allison Levine, who is uh, an author of On the Edge, Leadership Lessons from Mount Everest and Other Extreme Environments. Her book was published by a division of Hachette. Uh, Thank you so much uh, for joining us, Allison Levine. Um, Why do you think it was a mistake for Hachette to take the book on in the first place? Um, I think it was a huge mistake, first of all, because... They owe some loyalty to Ronan Farrow, who has been one of their most successful high-profile authors and whose book was so, so personal. I mean, his story of pursuing the Harvey Weinstein investigation and the expose he wrote and all the betrayal that he experienced around every corner. He was betrayed by NBC. He was betrayed by Lisa Bloom. He was betrayed by people who he thought were his friends, and he persevered and he risked everything, his career, his his well-being. I mean, he was okay. being we're, we're all short on time. So, so you yeah. think out of loyalty to Ronan Farrow, they should have uh, agreed not to do it. Now, my understanding is he was not told about this before the public announcement. Do you know anything about the timing of this? Correct. He was not told about it until about a month before the book was due to be published. And Hachette and Grand Central had been working on this book, I would say, for probably at least a year. That's how long I worked on my book with them. And for for no one in leadership to have thrown up a flag at all along the entire, you know, throughout the entire process along the way, somebody should have raised their hand and said, hang on, this may be a bad idea. If I had been in that room, I would have, you know, thrown up a red flag and probably also thrown up. Is, is you know? this as much a financial issue that because Pharaoh is a lucrative author for the book company that they should have been careful not to offend him or the fact that this is a family matter for him, you think is what makes it that he should have essentially had veto over the book? I don't think it has. I I don't think it should have been tied to the money at all. I think that it is such a personal family matter to him that sheerly out of courtesy to Ronan Farrow and out of respect to him and out of loyalty to him and as his business partner, because as his publisher there, his business partner, they should have that should have just been a hard pass on Woody Allen's book. It should have been a hard pass from the beginning. We're talking with Allison Levine. She's a mountaineer and speaker and author of the book On the Edge, Leadership Lessons from Mount Everest and Other Extreme Environments. Her book published by Grand Central Publishing, a division of Hachette. And uh, you hear her criticism of the company uh, for whom she's written agreeing in the first place to to publish Woody Allen's book. Also joining us is Suzanne 
Nossel, who's chief executive officer of PEN America, the national organization of of writers. Uh, She also has a book that's coming out uh, in just a couple of months titled Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All. Ms. Nossel, thank you for being with us. Do you think that Hachette made a mistake in canceling publication after first agreeing to publish the book? Well, I think you've got to separate the initial decision to publish the book, and I don't pass judgment uh, on that. That's not my role to second-guess an editorial decision. But I think once that decision has been made, there needs to be a very high bar when it comes to reversing that decision under fire. You know, And in this case, I think it was a bit of a perfect storm for the reasons that Allison set out and the fact that you had Ronan Farrow and Woody Allen being published by the same house and dealing with such a traumatic family rupture. But the outcome here where there was an outpouring of protest internally within the company and outrage, and the company ended up reversing this decision and, and canceling the book, you know, in this case, maybe some special circumstances operated, but in general, it sets a worrying precedent. You know, the idea that if a book is controversial uh, if there are people who are upset, outraged, you know, ready to walk out uh, away from their desk, that uh, that can bring a planned book to an end and cause editors to reverse their judgment. We want that to be very rare. That's a worrying situation. In this case, you know, Woody Allen may not have many sympathizers, but the next time around it could be somebody who, uh, you know, voices a controversial opinion on a scientific matter or a health issue. And, if they have their detractors who call it into question and they make enough noise, the publisher you know, may decide really not to publish in the first place, you know, not wanting to foresee this sort of thing happening down the line. So as a professional well, organization, you know, that yeah. is the prime concern, really. What kind of precedent does this set and how do we avoid a situation where publishers simply shy away from controversial books because they know the blowback will be so intense that they won't be able to withstand it. One thing I found a little curious is there have been major publishers who have published memoirs from people who've committed terrible crimes for which they were uh, actually convicted. In this case, you have an allegation from Woody Allen's daughter to investigations. No charges were fired, uh, filed. I understand it's a very complex complex case and people claiming both sides of this. But um, there's certainly ambiguity around this that there aren't in some of the other controversial books involving crimes that, that uh, you know, were actually proven in court. So are you concerned, Suzanne Nossel, that this could set a precedent? I am. And, you know, I don't think even proof in court should be the standard in terms of a book. I mean, we can learn something as a society from a book written by a convicted murderer or, or, or even a pedophile. Uh, you know, there may be some important insights. It may be about the nature of evil that we derive from a book like that. But if there are editors who exercise professional judgment and decide, look, this is a story worth telling. There's something to be gained here. There's a reason to put out this book. I don't think we want a kind of societal litmus test of, you know, is this person good or evil? There's so many you know, highly regarded artists, authors throughout history who've had deeply checkered personal backgrounds. You know, Norman Mailer stabbed his wife. 
you know, would we uh, have wished his publisher to cancel him? I'd like to hear from AirTalk listeners what you think. We've we've heard Allison Levine, who's a published author, buy a division of Hachette Books, the company that originally agreed to publish, then uh, said that they won't publish Woody Allen's um, autobiography. Her argument is that Ronan Farrell, there's a relationship between a publisher and an author, that that's an important thing. It needs to be nurtured and and needs to be uh, honored, and that Hachette did not honor that in their original decision to publish the book. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. You've heard Suzanne Nossel of Pan America, uh, her concerns about uh, the message that this sends, but I'd like to hear from you what you think about the two decisions, the first one originally to publish, then the decision backtracking that no, Hachette wouldn't. 866-893-5722. Back in one minute. It's Air Talk on 89.3 KPECC. We're talking about uh, the decision that rocked the publishing world when Hachette announced uh, eight days ago they were going to publish a uh, an autobiography by Woody Allen. And uh, then by Friday, after a walkout of Hachette employees in support of uh, one of their big authors, Ronan Farrow, who was the son of Woody Allen, uh, they then announced they would not be publishing the book after all. 866-893-KPECC. Also with a senior editor at The American Conservative, Rod Dreer. He's author of a piece, The Woody Allen Witch Hunt. Thank you for being with us. Uh, your concerns briefly because we have listener calls here, but briefly your concerns about Hachette backing out. Well, I thought it was disgraceful what Hachette did. And they're my publisher, uh, publisher of a book I wrote in 2013, Grand Central is. I think it's disgraceful for all the reasons Suzanne said earlier, but also because the impression that has been left by what they did on Friday is that they yielded to the protest of a mob, a mob of their own employees who denounced the publisher publicly. I think probably they pulled the book uh, in regret over having angered Ronan Farrow, one of their biggest authors. Nevertheless, the impression that they've left is that a mob, a woke mob, a progressive mob that has cultural politics on its side gets a heckler's veto. Woody Allen's book is not a book for me. I don't like Woody Allen. But I really am worried about who the next victim is and where we draw the line. What uh, What about, though, Alison Levine's point that the relationship between an author and a publisher is, an, is important, needs to be nurtured, and that Hachette, the real error was in them doing this when Ronan Farrow um, and all the, the challenges he faced in doing his reporting on Weinstein and Me Too and the like was left out of the loop. Yeah, I think Allison is right about that. Given the particular circumstances of the fact that Ronan Farrow is one of their top authors, they should have been open with him about this. And the fact that they kept it concealed from him and everybody else for so long indicates that they knew that there was something dodgy going on here. But having made the decision to publish the book, they had a moral obligation to Woody Allen and frankly to their uh, to his readers 
to go ahead and stick with what they had announced. Adam in West Hollywood, your opinion of Hachette's, uh, both of their decisions? Yes, uh, I'm also a published author. I'm also a frequent contributor to the New York Times. I think that this is very dangerous for a writer, and it's very disconcerting. There's already such a protracted marketplace to have the fear after you completed a work, after you've made a contract, all this time and energy put into something to, to lose it all. It is very daunting. All right, Adam, thanks very much. I appreciate it. Let's talk with Eduardo in Santa Monica, your opinion of Hachette. Larry, where in the, sta- where in the federal constitution or in the uh, constitution of the state of New York does it state that presumption of innocence and due process are waived in cases of sexual misconduct? The decision by the Hachette employees, their demonstration, and Hachette's decision to not publish the book is punishing Woody Allen. But what is he being punished for? There has been no trial. Punishment without a trial is lynching. Well, Eduardo, let me go back to Allison Levine on that, because, you know, he may get the book published somewhere else. Um, my assumption is he's not in dire financial straits that the advance on this is is going to make or break him. So, yeah, whether it's fair or not to him, you, the issue you raise about due process and, and you know, whether he's guilty or innocent of, of uh, sexual abuse of his daughter— for a publisher, they're making it on you know a variety of other uh, points. Allison Levine, you want to respond to that? Yeah, so I actually do agree with the um, with Rod and Suzanne that it's very dangerous to start you know letting this mob mentality rule and decide who they want to be you know who should have a book published and who shouldn't. I think Woody Allen has a right to publish his book. Allison Levine doesn't want Woody Allen. You know, Allison Levine personally doesn't want him to publish. Allison Levine, the American, says this is America. Anybody should be able to publish a book. I just think that Woody Allen should take his book elsewhere. I think take it to Simon & Schuster, take it to HarperCollins, but Hachette, out of loyalty to Ronan Farrow, should not be the publisher to be giving him a platform. All right. And, And Allison, what about your thoughts as well about, again, Uh, sort of the moral issue of whether someone's been accused or convicted of crime. Do you think that should enter into the decision-making of a publisher, or or are there other considerations, uh, public interest or public education, that would supersede that issue? So going back to, you know, this is America, First Amendment rights, you know, look, he has not been found guilty of a crime. I think he does have a right to tell his story and he should be able to get his story out there. I'm not going to buy his book. I don't want to read it. You know, I'm with Rod. I don't, I don't like this guy. I think he is a sexual predator, but he, as an American, he has the right to have his story heard and to be the person to tell it in his words. But I just think it's a huge mistake for Hachette to be the publisher to do that. As the publisher, they've got to help him line up media. They've got to get him booked on television shows, on radio programs, and they've got to support him and his story. And I think Hachette really looks bad being the publisher that was about to do that. Okay. Yes, because Uh, of All right. Chris in Woodland Hills, very briefly, your comment, sir. Yes, I don't want Ronan Farrow deciding for me what I read. Woody Allen is a very literate man, and I would benefit tremendously by reading his story. The other stuff uh, just is immaterial. Uh, he's been found not guilty, but uh, I, I, 
am being denied the benefit of reading his book because someone doesn't want me to read it. And just to clarify, he he was not prosecuted, so uh, it's a little different than being found not guilty. But uh, let me share uh, some more listener comments here. Evolved Ape writes on the page, self-righteousness and censorship go hand in hand. The left undermines the very foundations of liberal democracies by making censorship and self-censorship the norm. Uh, one thing we should mention, though, you know, publishing company has the right to publish what it wants to or not. This isn't like the government censoring something. So Hachette is totally within its rights either to publish it or not to publish it. Um, the issue is is really, you know, what, what, what was the better move? What, what was the wiser thing? Was it to, to not uh, agree to publish it in the first place, as Alison Levine says, or should they, once they agreed to it, should they never have backed out because their employees walked out in support of author Ronan Farrow? Uh, let me share uh, another listener call here. Um, uh, Frank of America writes, I disagree with the decision not to publish Woody Allen's book. Even Hitler's Mein Kampf is still in print. I understand it's a private company. The decision run, doesn't run afoul of any laws. However, this is overboard. Pippi writes on the page, I never liked Woody Allen or his movies, but this decision to back out of publishing his book is wrong based on what their employees thought. If the employees don't like what Hachette is publishing, they can find other jobs. And if the public has a problem, they don't have to buy it. Well, I want to thank our guests for joining us and talking about uh, the ongoing controversy from Hachette's decision about the Woody Allen autobiography. Allison Levine, Suzanne Nossel, and Rob Dreer joining us on Air Talk. Coming up, we'll talk about Super Tuesday, or I should say Big Tuesday, a week after Super. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us. A little bit later this hour, we'll talk with education writer Diane Ravitch. Her new book, Slaying Goliath, The Passionate Resistance to Privatization and the Fight to Save America's Public Schools. There's going to be a chance to talk with her. And if you're a charter school advocate or charter school parent, you'll have a chance to call in and talk with Diane Rivich, who takes uh, the charters to task in her new book. But we begin with politics and a big day with six state primaries, including the big prize of Michigan. Joining us to talk about the importance of today's primary day is lead 2020 campaign editor for Bloomberg News, Wendy Benjamin. Wendy, good to have you with us today. Let's talk about Michigan and why this state is so very important in this primary season. Well, thank you, first, for having me. And second, uh, Michigan is a very important state, and it's really, let's start with the math. It's one of the most important states because it has more delegates to offer tonight to a candidate than three of the other states voting tonight combined, Washington, Idaho, and North Dakota. Um, The other states are Mississippi and Missouri. It's also a great testing ground for the general election. You have a large African-American population in the cities. You have 
a significant Arab-American population. You have um, union workers in the auto industry of all races. You have um, uh, rural voters. You have uh, maybe the Obama-Trump voters, that very important block that voted for Obama in 2012 and then turned to vote for Donald Trump in 2016 and are ripe for picking, the Democrats believe. So it's got, you know, something for everybody. If Joe Biden ends up winning Michigan, how big a mountain then is it for Bernie Sanders to climb going forward? It's a pretty big mountain um, because we're looking at the states ahead then the following Tuesday where you have Illinois and Ohio whose demographics are very similar to that of Michigan. And so as goes Michigan, probably as goes uh, Illinois and Ohio, you have Florida and Georgia, which are going to be very in favor um, of Joe Biden uh, a week from today. And uh, then you have Arizona, which is a relatively small state. Um, Bernie is favored there right now. It has a heavy Latino population, which is, um, which at least in Nevada, tended to vote for Bernie Sanders. So that could be his last stand, but it's not going to be enough to make up for Florida, Illinois, and Ohio. And uh, conversely, if Bernie Sanders wins Michigan, how much does that help to reverse Biden's momentum last Tuesday? It. It could certainly hit the brakes on it, if not, you know, grind it to a screeching halt. Um, Again, he would pick up a lot of delegates. He leads Biden now, or excuse me, he trails Biden now by only 91 delegates. So if he picks up 125, which I think is the number in Michigan, then um, then he's uh, then he's well positioned again. Uh, But then again, look at the states on the following Tuesday, including Florida. Um, But it does make it an interesting contest, um, continuing. We're talking with Wendy Benjaminson, lead 2020 campaign editor for Bloomberg News. Um, African-American vote, you mentioned one of the major uh, segments of of the voting populace in Michigan. And what's the sense of having Kamala Harris and Cory Booker, the two senators, endorsing Joe Biden? Is that expected to carry much weight among black voters in Michigan? It, it certainly could, and he they both campaigned with him last night there in Michigan, and that that's a big help. But it seems like Joe Biden already had that sewn up, so they're more like the cherries on top of the sundae, if you will. I mean, mm-hmm. um, you know, he won South Carolina, he won Alabama, he won um, a lot of the other southern states, Texas, that voted um, on, on Super Tuesday. And so, I mean, he's really expected to to do well in Mississippi and Missouri tonight. So the idea that um, Kamala Harris and Cory Booker would add to that, of course they would. But I think it's more of a proof of his appeal to the African-American community. And let's not forget, if Biden's a nominee, he needs to pick a running mate. And I would say both of their applications are in. Have we heard any reports in any of these states people concerned about uh, the COVID-19 coronavirus might avoid in-person voting or because we I'm not aware of outbreaks in these states? Is that not something that seems to be of, of concern by the by the county registrars? It is a concern of the county registers and the secretaries of state. Um, They have uh, moved some polling places out of elderly centers to avoid having um, the residents there exposed to the coronavirus, possibly, because, as you know, it's it's much more dangerous for older people. Um, It is uh, in Washington state where they have only mail-in ballots, so they don't have to worry about uh, people waiting in long lines together. 
On the other hand, they are having a campaign begging voters not to lick their envelopes. And I don't even know how long saliva stays on an envelope, but they are begging people to use tape or something rather than licking the envelope that they're still sending in. They do have a large coronavirus problem. The others are doing extra deep cleaning on the polling equipment, um, you know, and, and switching out the pencils that you use to mark your ballots uh, more often. So everyone is taking it into account. The one group that isn't are the candidates. I mean, Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden are no spring chickens, right? They're in their late 70s. Yeah. And and, and, and shaking hands and kissing babies. And Bernie Sanders had heart surgery just a few months ago. He did, exactly. So the um, they seem to be just, you know, charging right ahead, as does President Donald Trump, who's also in his mid-70s now. Wendy, thank you for being with us and giving us the latest on uh, the high stakes with these primaries, particularly Michigan today. We appreciate it. All right. Thank you so much. From Bloomberg News, she's the lead 2020 campaign editor, Wendy Benjaminson. My next guest is someone who I think's just moved into KPCC. Do you have an apartment here now? I do. Libby Dankman. Yes. Um, living on premises. Right. It's right under the studio, actually. I, I see you here early. I see you here late. <laughs> I see you. Uh, of course, Libby, our politics reporter here at KPCC, who has been everywhere over the past several weeks, including now covering a criminal matter, this former L.A. City Councilman Mitch Englander's multiple count federal grand jury indictment and his him being taken into custody yesterday. What What's this involved? Right. He uh, surrendered to uh, federal investigators yesterday. That's Mitch Englander, who announced in October of 2018 that he was stepping down from his 12th district council seat. A surprise announcement because he had two years left in his term. And at the time, Englander said he was going to work in the private sector for a sports marketing and lobbying firm called Oakview group. Uh, shortly after that, uh, it seemed as though the uh, former chief of staff, uh, John Lee, who uh, was following in the footsteps of many 12th District council members, former chiefs of staff who became council members, he started running and he was elected in that August 2019 special election to represent the district. Well, now we have some more context about what could have been going on and going through Mitch Englander's mind when he decided to step down from city council. And that is that at the time he knew he was under investigation by the FBI. He had been contacted uh, by the FBI and he had been in contact with other people who were talking to the FBI about these allegations that he had accepted lavish gifts from a business person who wanted to juice their interests at City Hall, who wanted to get connections to developers, who wanted to present their products to developers and kind of get a tighter connection here uh, with the lucrative development industry in, in Los Angeles. So what Mitch Englander is accused of accepting from this business person is uh, $15,000 in cash, and that was allegedly handed over in envelopes during a trip to Las Vegas in June of 2017, and then a Palm Springs golf tournament at the Morongo Casino Resort and Spa in just a, about 10 days later, also in June of 2017. The uh, gifts during the Vegas trip included... 
$24,000 in bottle service at a Las Vegas club. The cash that I mentioned, that was a $10,000 gift in Vegas. $2,500 for dinner and drinks, and then some female escorts that were hired for a few hundred dollars, also by this business person who was trying to curry favor at City Hall. Now, just Uh, to clarify, the the indictments yesterday, they are about alleged efforts to obstruct the investigation. They don't necessarily get to the to the specific charges of graft, right? Right. What we're talking about here is the cover-up, not the crime. It's uh, obstruction of justice alleged uh, to have been conducted uh, for several months over uh, the course of 2017 and part of 2018. And that is laid out in this indictment, includes uh, Mitch Englander contacting this business person and speaking with them over an app called Confide that destroys your messages after you use them. Uh, it, it is a great name for an app. Confide, but, yeah, right? Yeah. A, a good good name for something that you might use to um, cover up a criminal investigation, for example. Uh, but it, so Englander allegedly, for example, uh, met this business person at a uh, fundraising event and discussed the FBI investigation with them and said, you know, to to pretend like you don't remember what occurred with the escorts, uh, to say you don't recall uh, what went on in Vegas. Um, There was a scene that just really felt like it was out of a mob movie where Englander and the business person, who at the time was cooperating with the FBI, which is why we know all of this, uh, the, the business person gets into Englander's car downtown and they begin driving around in circles downtown. Englander... Uh, puts the stereo up really loud so that they defeat any listening devices. And he discusses the investigation and the way that this business person should throw the FBI uh, off the trail or say that he doesn't recall anything that went on between Englander and this business person. So all of these counts, uh, tampering with witnesses, obstruction of justice, that's what Englander was facing in court yesterday when he appeared. He uh, pleaded not guilty. And he has been released on $50,000 bond. Uh, Libby Dankman, KPCC politics reporter, joining us on AirTalk. How does this fit into other investigations by federal officials involving City Hall? So we know that this was part of a wider investigation the FBI has been conducting into pay-to-play schemes, into all sorts of graft and corruption at City Hall. It does not appear that this is directly connected to the uh, FBI raid of Jose Huizar's office and the subsequent warrant that was uh, uncovered uh, in early 2019 that was served on Raymond Chan, who was working with the Department of Planning, and he had been a deputy mayor under Garcetti. He was... Uh, uh, um, Uh, in possession of a Google, uh, a Gmail account that the FBI served a warrant on, and a number of City Hall officials, including Councilman Weezar, his staff, and some family members. Uh, The current price was named in that warrant. A number of uh, city officials, including... Staffer to Herb Wesson, I believe. uh, Chief of Staff to Herb Wesson, yes. So that warrant is what we know about that investigation that's also 
we assume, connected to the FBI raid of Weezar. However, we don't know if this Englander investigation, it appears to have just kind of been a branch off of that tree, which is this wider investigation. Weezar was the chair of the Planning and Land Use Management Committee, the Plum Committee, and Englander was on the Plum Committee. So perhaps they're really focused on Plum, and that's why this Englander investigation sort of branched off. We have been wondering, of course, why it's taken so long since, you know, the Weezar raid uh, we saw pictures of and, and we know it occurred in the fall of 2018. Uh, it's been over a year since that occurred. No charges, you know, nothing has stemmed from that. But now the Englander charges have emerged. And so the question is, how many dominoes are going to fall here? Are we going to start to see uh, the uh, federal investigators start to come out with charges now that these other uh, investigations are getting tied up? We're talking with KPCC politics reporter Libby Dankman. Um, Do we have any sense of why the federal government isn't filing charges specifically about uh, the alleged exchange of cash and and um, prostitution and, and yeah, whatnot. envelopes why it's, of cash. Yeah, why why it is confined in this case to the allegations of witness tampering and obstruction? You know, I don't have any insight. The uh, U.S. Attorney's Office isn't talking at this point. The FBI never talks about an investigation, so we don't know if uh, you know there's something involved with the decision making process of uh, you know which charges they knew you know they could try to get to stick. It's unclear why. When you have uh, a direct witness saying that a city councilman accepted envelopes of cash in casino bathrooms, uh, you wouldn't go after you know those charges directly. And do we know anything about the business person involved here? Is just where they call the person is business person A or B or right? It's business person A, and we know that they wanted to. Get make connections in uh, you know city development. We know that Mitch Englander did uh, introduce them to uh, a developer friend of his over lunch, and he made promises about other introductions. We don't know exactly. It it doesn't seem that this business person is a developer themselves, just based on contextual clues in the indictment. But again, these players are only identified as say, city staffer B, who is a a person of interest now, because this is a staffer who, in the indictment, uh, was along on the Vegas trip and also participated in sending a backdated check to the business person after the FBI investigation. uh, You know, they became aware of the FBI investigation. This city staffer B, we don't know for certain who it may be. Uh, However, we do know that John Lee, the current sitting city council member in District 12, who uh, is currently leading Lorraine Lundquist in that re-election battle, um, he has come out and said, I was on the Vegas trip, but he has said, I did not know of any illegal activity and I have participated in the FBI investigation, so cooperated. Mm -hmm. Um, We know that this city staffer B was identified as a staffer who left in June of 2017 from the office of Mitch Englander, and that is the same time at which John Lee left 
There was another staffer who left in, in the same month, and that staffer has come out and said, I am not city staffer B identified in this indictment. So we do have a number of, obviously, Lorraine Lindquist coming out and saying we need to know what role John Lee played in all of this. As she's trailing in the race. As she is trailing in the race. Uh, and, you know, currently we just don't know, you know, for example, there's a city councilman identified in this indictment, city councilman A, and then we have city staff. Staffer A, who works for that city councilman, and we can presume things based on contextual clues, but it's just impossible to connect those dots for now. All right. Uh, And Libby, I haven't seen comment from current city council members. Are are they just avoiding commenting at all on this investigation? Thus far, I have not seen any comment beyond what John Lee has released from his personal office. Uh, We are, of course, going to keep asking. The mayor did uh, make a comment and, you know, saying that he wants to get to the bottom of all of this. The mayor did uh, make a brief statement yesterday. Um, You know, we, uh, of course, would love to hear from them. But again, this feels like there are so many uh, roots of this investigation spreading out across City Hall. It's a very sensitive situation there right now. And I'm sure uh, a lot of city council members are looking around and looking at their staff and wondering, you know, will I or my staff show up in the next court document that's that's released? It's it's really quite a remarkable time to be covering city politics, Larry. And it's been, as you said, been going on for so long, uh, close to a year and a half. Libby, thanks so much. We'll look forward to your continuing coverage of the story. Thanks, Larry. KPCC politics reporter Libby Dankman joining us on Air Talk. The Los Angeles Times has just announced it is postponing its Festival of Books. Huge event they do every year at USC and their food bowl also being postponed because of concerns over coronavirus. That festival of books, a real favorite of KPCC listeners. You're listening to Air Talk. We'll be back in just one minute. Such pleasure to have you with us on Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Coming up a little bit later, we'll talk with Diane Ravitch, who's been writing about education for many, many years. And in fact, she was uh, the Assistant Secretary of Education in George H.W. Bush's administration, uh, then uh, actually went back to work in the federal government Department of Education uh, later on uh, during the Clinton years. Her new book is Slaying Goliath, The Passionate Resistance to Privatization and the Fight to Save America's Public Schools. That's coming up later this hour on Air Talk right here on KPCC. But what about kids even younger than that, pre-kindergarten. How altruistic are toddlers? Well, a study at the University of Washington's Institute for Learning and Brain Sciences attempted to get to that question, and, and they had a study that was recently published in the journal Scientific Reports. Uh, we're very pleased to have with us Rodolfo Berrigan, who is lead author of the study, is also a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Washington. Sir, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. So how how did how did this study get designed? Who who came up with the idea of trying to figure out uh, whether whether uh, toddlers are altruistic? <laughs> well, uh, you know, 
in the news media, you know, you oftentimes hear about studies that show maybe one st- one species is altruistic, another one might also be. But we really looked at the wide scope of studies, and we realized that there was something that humans do that no other species is reported to do. To do. And so we decided to look at whether very young infants at uh, 19 months of age would in fact do this. So that is the transfer of a food item to another person from hand to hand, the readiness to spontaneously do that and share a delicious food item, in this case, fruit, that had never been demonstrated in other species, and we decided to see if it could be present in young humans. Well, let's talk about chimps, chimpanzees. How do, how do their young uh, behave when it comes to food, as, as well as how do uh, the the parents of of the little chimps behave when it comes to food? Yeah, so you know it's really intriguing that very young uh, chimpanzees, just like very young humans, reach out uh, towards their mothers when their mother is, say, holding a delicious piece of fruit like a banana, a grape, and yet chimpanzee mothers do not uh, share uh, that uh, sweet part of the fruit. They might share the the stem or some leaves, uh, but they there is no evidence that they share these delicious, nutritious, sweet fruits that we found in our study that, of course, human infants um, do. So let's, let's talk about uh, the first study, what you had in the control group. Um, so you, you had 19-month-olds, and, and they come to the laboratory, and then you've got a researcher who's facing the 19-month-old. So what does the control group do versus the other group? Yeah, so um yeah, so in one group uh the infants see the begging experimenter, so it's very clear that that person would like the fruit. Uh so in that situation the majority of the infants picked up the fruit, a fruit and then gave it to the experimenter. In the other situation, uh we kind of uh intentionally threw the fruit into into the tray rather than letting it accidentally fall. So we uh, decided to do this because there was actually previous studies of chimpanzees uh, that found that, for example, if you accidentally drop, uh, say, a lid uh, from a jar in front of them and reach for it, they will... uh, come over, pick it up, and um, and give it to you. Um, however, they don't do that when you intentionally throw it, so they can uh, see what your intentions are, what you need. Uh, so in this way, human infants were able to read our needs, our intent to reach that fruit or not reach that fruit. So when we didn't want to reach the fruit, yeah, they didn't provide help. There was no intention, there was no need to do so. What about uh, the follow-up you did where the child is brought to the uh, test center and they're brought hungry. <laughs> so you see how the the kid's own interest in having that piece of fruit plays into it. What'd you find there? Yes. So we asked parents to come into the lab at a time when their infant would be ready for their next snack or a meal. Um, so rather than, you know, a random time, which is what they did in the first study, So in the second study, we found uh, two really intriguing things is that, of course, they actually ate more of the fruit. They ate more strawberries, blueberries, et cetera, um, more than twice as much. And 
but yet they still helped, and they helped to a considerable um, extent, L- somewhat less than in the first study, but they, there was still a helpful altruistic response. Now, uh, as, as infants uh, age, do we have evidence that acculturation, um, family expectations, at what point those start to become a factor, or was that evident even here? Yeah, so one of the really intriguing uh, components of our study, one of the uh, kind of supplementary analyses, is that we did look at two social experiences that uh, previous research has suggested could play into this. So we looked to see, uh, uh, first, um, do infants have any siblings? Uh, And second, um, do they come from what social psychologists refer to as an interdependent background, uh, cultural background? So in the specific case of the United States, social psychologists have argued that um, uh, groups from Asian and Hispanic Latino uh, backgrounds, uh, they are more interdependent, which oftentimes, which means uh, focus on others. There's a greater uh, uh, proclivity to focus on others and see them as connected to the self. So what we found in our study was that uh, when we looked at a big statistical analysis of the entirety of our data, uh, we found that um, infants who had siblings and infants from those cultural backgrounds uh, actually ended up uh, sharing uh, more of the fruit in our study, which we think, of course, means that you know uh, infants are not coming in as uh, blank slates into the study. They have all these experiences, and those are just two of the experiences that could uh, affect how they uh, interact in our study. But does it seem, given the universality of of providing the fruit to the adult, that there there is something inborn different about humans than than chimpanzees, for example, that um, whether it's at root sort of a survival instinct that sharing actually improves survival or avoids harm, or you know what are the theories about the reasons for this? Yeah, so it's that's very intriguing to you know to think about. In our study, we were really focused on the proximate level of analysis. However, uh, it's very clear that collaboration um, helps human groups to survive. So it's possible that you know, human infants uh, certainly gravitate uh, towards cooperating with others and sharing resources because you know those could be useful advantages uh, in, in group living. Uh, so it would be very intriguing you know, to do even more research uh, to try to figure that out and you know, comparing infants to, to chimpanzees. We're talking with a postdoctoral fellow and researcher at the University of Washington, Rodolfo Cortez Barragan, uh, joining us to talk about this study on which he's lead author, uh, which shows 19-month-old when brought into the laboratory when they perceive that the um, uh, the adult who has dropped a piece of fruit, that they're wanting that piece of fruit they can't reach, the 19-month-old will help them, even when hungry, to give the piece of fruit uh, to the researcher in uh, the laboratory. What's uh, Before I let you go, uh, what, what's sort of the, the natural successor experiment to this? Well, you know, uh, thankfully, there's uh, you know new uh, research always begets even more research. Uh, so, you know, we think it would be fascinating to do uh, follow-ups uh, and examine you know the day-to-day interactions. How did they day-to-day interactions 
uh, help children to become helpful because we certainly uh, know that they can uh, learn all sorts of things. So it would be wonderful to know exactly what is going on in their everyday living that can help children to engage in this cooperative way. Rodolfo, thank you for being with us. We appreciate it very much. And I know you're up there at the University of Washington. Are, are you, have you folks gone uh, for the undergraduates there all online? Uh, uh, yes, the undergrads, uh, yes. Uh, the, because of the uh, COVID-19 concerns. Yeah. Thank you so much, sir, for being with us. Postdoctoral fellow at the University of Washington joining us on 89.3 KPCC. And I want to remind you that every day we're going to be providing you updates on COVID-19 events that are canceled. We'll have a public health expert, epidemiologist on to take your calls to answer questions about the virus so that you stay up to date on the very latest. Coming up on Fresh Air with Terry Gross at noon, RuPaul, who brought drag into the mainstream with RuPaul's Drag Race. It just started a new season. And an appreciation of the great McCoy Tyner the jazz pianist. I was so sad to see his death at the age of 81 uh, over the weekend, or I guess it was late last week that he died. I started listening to my music of McCoy Tyner, just such a such a, a great art. I love those heavy hands with which he played, whether with John Coltrane or other artists or on his own recordings. We'll continue on Air Talk back in just 90 seconds. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle, and such a pleasure to have you with us. I appreciate it so much. Education advocate Diane Ravitch goes back to George H.W. Bush's administration as Assistant Secretary of Education. She's worked both inside the federal government and also in the academy uh, as a professor at NYU, research professor of education. And she's written 10 books on the topic of, of education or associated issues. Her latest is Slaying Goliath the passionate resistance to privatization and the fight to save America's public schools. Diane Ravage, a pleasure to have you with us once more on AirTalk. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Larry. Uh, let's start, first of all, with um, what we've seen with charter schools, because you really take them on in this book and are highly critical of the charter experiment. Um, and, and you tie it into uh, a kind of an effort to disrupt the whole public school model by coming up with schools that are run like businesses and which, in essence, um, though they use tax dollars, compete with public district-run schools. Um, there are those who claim that the charter schools outperform the district-run schools. You take issue with that, and why? Uh, because it's simply a fact that charter schools on the whole do not outperform public schools. Uh, a small percentage of them get higher test scores, but they're usually the schools that don't accept children with disabilities, that don't accept children who don't speak or read English, and who kick out the kids that they don't want, so therefore they have higher scores. Uh, there's a very significant percentage of charter schools that are at the very bottom of their state ratings, uh, underperforming the regular public schools. My big problem with charter schools is that we're creating two systems of, of 
schools getting public funding when we can barely afford to uh, take care of one system. Our current school system, public schools in California and elsewhere, is dramatically underfunded. California is spending on par with the state of South Carolina. Uh, it, it has underinvested in public education for a generation and spent uh, many hundreds of millions, if not billions, on charter schools. Uh, so I, it just doesn't make sense. You have, have We have to have one great system of public schools, just as we have one police department, one fire department, one set of public highways, and this is a public service that should, should be of excellent quality, and it's not. We should mention when it comes to per-pupil funding and where California ranks, I, I assume you're looking at the ones that are weighted for the cost of living. Uh, the state legislative analyst office puts per pupil spending at 29th in the in the country in California and public education funding has gone up considerably over the past couple of years here. Uh, I was looking at the federal data and on the federal data uh, it may not be weighted for cost of living uh, but California is far below average on the federal data. Yeah, and uh, so hypothetically what would be wrong if you ended up with a public education system in which there were more charters than there were district-run schools. The argument would be this gives parents a greater selection, more more choice on the type of school or even the type of governance within that school. What, what would be wrong with that in your view? Well, the charter movement has been promoted primarily by billionaires, Wall Street, and Silicon Valley tech titans. Uh, they believe in the free market. But the problem with the free market is that it always produces winners and losers. We only have to look at what's happened in the stock market in the last few days to see that the free market is not one that lifts all boats. And competition does not make public schools better. It actually makes them worse because uh, the charter schools can choose the students they want. They have the freedom to kick out the students they want. And when they're kicked out, where do they go? They go to the public schools. So if we were to have let's say, half the kids in public schools and half the kids in charter schools, the public schools would be overloaded with the kids with disabilities. It would be overloaded with the kids who don't speak or read English, and they would be considered the poor people's schools, and the charter schools would be considered like private schools with public money. That doesn't sound like a democratic system. We, we have for almost 200 years had a system in this country, or since about the 1840s, uh, so we're not quite at 200 years, but we've had a system where we believed in public education as the great equalizer, and we believed that the purpose of public education was, first of all, to create citizens, to develop character, and also to provide equality of educational opportunity. If you overload the public schools with the, the, one, the kids that the charter schools reject, uh, we're certainly uh, abandoning the principle of equality of educational opportunity and turning schools into a kind of a, a competitive marketplace where the uh, the rich and the powerful and the successful get one kind of education and everyone else gets uh, what's left over. Yes, though, you know, when you look historically at the public education system in America, there have been vast differences in the qualities of schools, even within the same district, even with like-to-like -like demographics, just schools that are far better run, that nurtures teachers much better, that support them more effectively. So we've had a lot of dud schools historically. Was there really ever a golden age of public education in this country? Probably the closest to it would have been the 1930s, and that was a time when we really made a commitment to, first of all, uh, raising the age at which kids could leave school 
before the 1930s, I'm, I'm a historian of education. And by the way, I served in the first Bush administration, not the George W. Bush administration. Uh, but in the ni- 1930s, that's when we raised the age at which kids could leave schools. And teaching, because of the Depression, teaching was a very, very desirable job. And there were many people who went into teaching just for the security of being a teacher and and not being laid off easily as other uh, people would be. So that would have been the closest thing to a golden age. Uh, But we've had a series of crises since then. First of all, uh, racially integrating our schools was very difficult, and we're still struggling with segregation in many parts of our our nation. Uh, Integrating children with disabilities was very difficult but necessary. Uh, All of these things were hard, and we have had wave upon wave, and this has been true not just recently but throughout the history of the schools, of non-English-speaking children when we had to integrate children who only spoke Italian, who only spoke Russian, who only spoke Spanish, whatever the language. It's been the public schools that have been the great integrating institution. So to destroy this institution, uh, so at the whim of Bill Gates and Eli Broad and the Walton family, is simply pathetic. We're talking with Diane Ravitch, slaying Goliath, the passionate resistance to privatization and the fight to save America's public schools. Our phone lines are open for you to ask questions of her. If you want to call in and talk about your experience with charter or district-run schools, we're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722, or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Uh, Diane, here in California, uh, the charter schools have to take students who have special needs, special education students. Uh, they're they're not able uh, to uh, not take kids who are English language learner for environment. Are are you saying that they're that they de facto exclude those kids, even though it's it's you know they're not allowed to do that? You know, I would have to look at the demographics to say if that's true. What I do know that's true about California is that it has had more charter scandals than any other state. Uh, California was the site of the single biggest charter scandal in the country, and that was an online charter that scammed the state. Uh, All of the principals involved were indicted in San Diego almost a year ago, and the uh, leading uh, figure in this has fled to Australia. Uh, But they scammed the state of $50 million dollars. Um, the, the online charters in general across the U.S. are a scandal. They're usually the worst performing school in the state. Uh, and there have been other scandals beside where individuals are now serving jail time for, for crimes committed in Los Angeles County uh, because they were embezzling from the school or simply pocketing millions of dollars or using this, the charter school credit card as their personal credit card and charging limousines and uh, first-class airfare and fancy dinners, et cetera, to their school credit card. So the problem is in California, and I know there's recently been a change in the charter law under Governor Newsom and leadership from uh, uh, Tony Thurman, the state superintendent of public instruction, but there has been very lax uh, control of charters, very lax oversight of either their finances or their academic practices. And I think that that's going to change starting June 1st. But in the meanwhile, they're rushing to open more charters so that they can get in before that deadline hits. Um, what California has allowed to happen in, up until now and, and until June 1st is letting little rural districts authorize charters in the biggest cities in Los Angeles and San Diego and San Francisco. 
And if the district that authorized them is 500 miles away, they can be sure of having no oversight at all. And that's what has happened in a number of these scandal cases where the uh, administrators were getting away with millions of public dollars and putting it in their bank account. You know, I have to say, as a kid, you know, came up in the L.A. public schools, Inglewood public schools. I went to good schools. I went to schools I didn't think were particularly good, and my parents couldn't afford, you know, private school alternative. I, I wish there would have, at times in my education, been a charter alternative to at least try it out. I guess I wonder what's, you know, yes, obviously there have been examples of corruption, but we've had embezzlement in district-run schools where principals or administrators who've done that sort of thing. But, Larry, you have seldom had a case where a district administrator, whether it was a superintendent or a principal, embezzled millions of dollars. There's far too much oversight and accountability. Charter, The California Charter School Association is the single most powerful lobby in Sacramento, and they have fought accountability at every step. They don't want oversight, and no public school can get away without oversight. I, I don't know of any example of a public school where the principal stole millions of dollars. We're talking with Diane Ravitch, her book, Slaying Goliath, The Passionate Resistance to Privatization and the Fight to Save America's Public Schools. You have a chance to ask her questions, to talk about district run, and to talk about charter schools, about the uh, wealthy uh, foundations and individuals who have been uh, touting reform efforts and charter school growth, not just in California, but other parts of the country. Arguably, though, California and particularly L.A., has been ground zero for the growth of public charter schools. We're at 866-893-KPCC, 866-893-5722, or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Back in one minute. Our guest, Diane Ravitch, has clearly struck a nerve <laughs> with charter school parents. I knew she would, and she knew it, of course, too, because um, there are so many supporters of charters, uh, parents who love the schools that their kids go to uh, that are operating. But Diane Ravitch, in her new book, Slaying Goliath, sees uh, the charter boom as creating a series of very serious problems affecting uh, the education the kids in district-run schools are getting, also leading to corruption, a lack of oversight in the charters, and serious problems uh, that uh, harm the future of public education in this country. Let's talk with Mia, who joins us from the West Adams District of L.A. You're on Air Talk. Hello, I have two children. One is in a traditional public school and one is in a charter. And I have to say that uh, in my experience, uh, charter schools, especially those with uh, a mission for inclusion like WISH and CHIME, but not just those, have a much better track record of serving special needs students and including them um, in their classrooms than traditional public schools like the one my son um, was discriminated against in. Um, I also want to say that um, there is oversight of charter schools, and I am very happy when poor or um, unethical charter schools are closed down, but where is that oversight for the traditional public schools that continually fail black and brown communities, and why are they, those children and those parents being demonized and scapegoated by the district when all they are searching for is educational equity. Mia, I appreciate your call. Diane Ravitch. 
Well, to begin with, I don't think that it's fair to take um, to say, well, my my child is happy, therefore all children should be happy. As it happens in L.A., more than 80 percent of the charters currently have vacancy uh, vacancies, and uh, one of the board members released this. There has been this myth that charters have long waiting lists, but it's simply not true. Whenever there's been any effort to verify those waiting lists, the, the claims collapse. Um, the fact is that between 85 and 90 percent of the children in this country attend traditional public schools. We have to make them better. I have never said that they're just fine, they're great, we should not touch them. I don't think they're fine. I don't think they're great. I think that charter schools are sucking resources out of the traditional schools so that the traditional schools then have larger classes, uh, fewer teachers, less fewer electives, and they're harmed. So we're harming the education of 85 to 90 percent of the children so that a few can, children can have those choices. Let's talk next with Justine in Echo Park. You're on Air Talk. Hi. Um, so I'm a parent uh, to a six-year-old who attends a public charter school here in Echo Park. Um, it is actually co-located with another campus, and it has been for about 10 years. Um, the student population served by my school, my daughter's school, very much mirrors the, the population served by our co-located campus. Um, and it's just really unfair. We were actually protested by UTLA yesterday um, while kids were leaving the school. And I think it's really unfair to demonize parents who make that choice, just like Larry Mantle mentioned when he was younger, he might have, you know, wanted a, a choice like that. I wanted that choice for my daughter. Um, and I made that choice and I opted into that school, into its lottery. And that was my decision. And my daughter loves it. She's doing great. It's not stealing from other kids. It's not done to harm other kids. And, you know, in particular, when we're talking to a historian of education, to say that the golden age of education was <laughs> the closest we got to it was the 1930s. And then to, to point to charter schools, which are a much more recent development than that, um, as sort of the problem and the thing that needs to be dealt with, I think it's really unfair. Um, and just to close it, I'm not a billionaire. I'm a working class parent. I don't know billionaires. I don't know Bill Gates. Um, so my decision, you know, isn't sort of spurred by that. And I'm tired of, you know, our families being in the middle of this political battle that really isn't serving us well. We're not coming right. to this succeeding. Justine, thank you very much. Appreciate your being with us. Robert Ian Bradbury says my son attends a charter school in the San Gabriel Valley. Uh, it's reversing a spiral of decline in the district-run school. Uh, the charter embraces the community and learning differences. They brought in high-income individuals who actually move there to go to public school. Diane Ravitch, your response to uh, Justine and to uh, Robert's comments. Well, I would recommend that they go online and Google Gordon Laffer, L-A-F-E-R, who's a professor at the University of Oregon who did a study of the how much charter schools are costing California public schools. He looked at three districts. One of them was San Diego. Uh, a second, I think, was Oakland. And the third was a, a smaller district. And the cost was in the millions. Uh, the, the regular public schools had to cut their electives increase class sizes uh, because the charter schools take money away from public schools. That's simply a fact. Now, I would make a distinction between, if you ask me as a parent, what should I choose for my child? I would say, I'm a parent, I'm a grandparent. Do the best you can for your child. If you think that charter school is the best school for your child, you should go ahead and do that. You're, you're acting as a consumer. You're not acting as somebody responsible for the public good. 
On the other hand, we have a secretary of education who would like to close all public schools. And what you're seeing, and this is why I would urge you to to read my book, even though you might not agree with its conclusions, uh, in Slaying Goliath, I show the the billionaires who are behind the charter movement, uh, the billionaires who are uh, like Reed Hastings and Eli Broad and Bill Gates and the DeVos family and the Walton family and on and on, uh, they are using charters as a wedge to turn people into consumers and not into citizens. And uh, what's happening here is uh, a devolution of our sense of responsibility for the common good. So read Gordon Laffer's study. It's called The Breaking Point. Uh, read my book, Slaying Goliath. You may not agree, but the distinction I would make is as a, if I were in charge of, uh, if I were secretary of education for the state or for the country, I would be trying to make public schools better because that's where most kids are. Yeah, I, I just want to mention with Eli Broad, you know, he's, uh, he's, He's a philanthropist full time. He's not running a company. He has no customers to develop through this. You don't think that this is about a view that public schools have been failing and and that kids, particularly from poor, com- poor communities, continue to fall behind and that many of these people see this philanthropy as trying to better the world. But Eli Broad has not bettered the world through his education philanthropy. If anything, he's trained dozens and scores of administrators to go out across the country where they've made deficits larger, have closed dozens and scores of public schools, and have been absolutely horrible administrators. They come from the Broad Academy, which he recently gave Yale University $100 million to take charge of. And uh, people who are from the Broad Academy have a record of being hostile to public schools and encouraging charter schools. What's happened to Oakland is a uh, an example of this where public schools are closed down and replaced with with struggling and failing charters. You can't forget that charters are not, a, A, they're not a panacea. B, most of them are not successful. Uh, most of them do about the same as public schools with poor kids. A few of them do better, uh, and a, a very large number of okay. them are the worst performing uh, schools in their state. Diane, the worst uh, pro- charters in Nevada, the worst schools in Nevada and Ohio are charter schools. Diane Ravage is author of Slaying Goliath, The Passionate Resistance to Privatization and the Fight to Save America's Public Schools. Uh, we have other listener comments uh, like Wendy in Long Beach. I'm a former charter school principal after being a district teacher. Uh, we have a very unique situation in Los Angeles. Charter address the needs of lower socioeconomic students. Uh, And we have Tom in Glendale who says, I taught both at charters and district-run schools. I believe that public district-run schools desperately need the funding the charter schools are getting. You can share your comments on the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Fresh Air is next.